You may be seated. If you're, uh, if you're visiting with us today, we're so glad that you're here. I'm Paul Joyner, uh, one of the pastors here. And if you are visiting with us and uh, would like to receive some more information about the church, you can grab one of those visitor cards in the pew rack in front of you, fill it out, and just drop it in one of the offering plates um, up here or in the back. Also, if you're a member here, a commuting member, um, and would like to nominate someone uh, for the office of elder or deacon, as Mark mentioned, that's on page 21 of our worship guide. Um, we just ask one thing, uh, put your name on that slip. Next week we'll have a slot for that. We forgot to put it in. Put your name um, on that slip, um, and then you can just drop that in the offering plate um, or in the front or the back as well. Well, if you are visiting with us, we are working our way through Paul's book, his first letter to the Corinthians. Um, and so uh, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, we've printed this on page 8 for you in the worship guide. If you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to grab one of those Bibles in the pew rack and take it home so you could have God's Word um, in your home. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting with verse 1. This is God's Word. And when I came to you, brothers... I did not come proclaiming, I came proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech, my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit. And of power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is God's word. Would you pray with me and ask his blessing on his word preached? God, we would sit here humbly before you and ask for you to unleash the power of your spirit in our midst. That we might be comforted where we're discouraged, strengthened where we're weak. That we might be confronted where there's sin and given repentance. That in all things we might leave here because your spirit has worked with a greater vision for the sufficiency of Jesus. Oh, that we might rest in him. And in Him alone. And so by your Spirit and with your power, draw us to the throne of grace. We pray this in our Savior's name. Amen. Well, as we've been working our way through 1 Corinthians, you've noticed and we've noticed and talked a lot about that Paul is consumed with the topic of power in this opening two chapters. And Part of the reason for that is that the Corinthian culture was consumed, obsessed with power. In other places in the Roman Empire, it was generally a place, to, the Roman Empire power was largely dependent on your status in the social spectrum, which was largely dependent on where you were born. But in Corinth, it was different. Corinth had been set aside by Caesar years ago, established as a city where people could make a name for themselves, a place where anybody could gain power with the right training or the right scheming and the right efforts. 
But there's another reason that Paul is focusing on power. He's often, as he does, segueing from what he finds present in the culture and in its massive insufficiency to do what really needs to be done. He's focusing on power because we need to be changed. And in order for us to be changed, power has to come. We, we don't... We don't we don't need new advice. We don't need new strategies. We don't need improved methods. We don't need just a simple change in diet or a strategy to cope. We need to be changed from the inside out. And in order for that to happen, we need power. I had said a couple of weeks ago, this is our working definition of power. Power is the ability to bend the world to your ideal. It's why power was so hungry and sought after in Corinth and in our own culture. There's a lot of disgust and dismay for the 1%, but I doubt many of us would turn down the opportunity to become one of them. Not just to get their wealth, but to get the things that their wealth has access to. The honor, the esteem, the comfort, the opportunities. Their money is just simply a way of gaining the power to bend the world to get the things that they want. Our disdain, to be honest with you, I think is born more out of jealousy than anything else. 1 Corinthians is what we call an occasional letter. Meaning it was written to address some particular concerns within the church. That was an occasion for Paul to write. And Paul's going to address those concerns. And they're pretty varied. Sexual immorality within the church. Greed. Pride. Factions where some had arisen around some concerns. Things were ugly inside of the Corinthian church. And Paul is going to call them to a radically different way of living life as a result of being in Christ. But that radically different way of living life is going to require the power of God to produce it. We can't do it by our own strength. You see, the Christian life, in this way, the Christian life, I often say the Christian life is, is a power encounter that tests our allegiances because the power of God has to overcome the power of sin so that we can walk in obedience. God has to recraft us from the inside out in order for us to walk in the ways of Jesus. It requires a power encounter for that to happen, I was struck this week, if you're joining with us in our Seeing Jesus Together journal, as we were reading Numbers chapter 10. In Numbers chapter 10, Israel is gathered around the tabernacle of God as a vast army at God's disposal. And God is in the midst of his people. And there, the focus is on the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was shaped like a king's footstool. The image that was given to Israel is God sits in heaven, reigning over all things, but he dwells with his people. And he's so immense that this little, this little thing that's central is, is just his footstool, but he's here with us. And then at the end of Numbers chapter 10, this is what we read. And the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord went before them three days' journey to seek out a place of rest for them. 
the power of God was coming at amongst his people and it was going to give them what they could not give themselves, rest. And the cloud of the Lord was over them by day. Whenever they sent out to camp and whenever the ark sent out, Moses said this, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered and let those who hate you Flee before you. That's the power we need to overcome sin in our lives and the temptations that we face. The power of the king who reigns and cannot be defeated. The power of the king who fights our battles and wins our wars. But I'm afraid that we look for that power in all of the wrong places because we look for it to come in all of the wrong ways. We are willing to exchange the power of God for powerless substitutes that just simply appeal to our natural desires. You see, the power of God is seldom, sometimes, but seldom is the the power of God displayed in flashy and exciting ways. The power of God is not like a lightning bolt that lights up the sky and then quickly dissipates, disappears The power of God is not like a sugar rush that excites in the moment then leaves us flat afterwards. God's power is the kind of power that a glacier holds that is incredible power and can recarve a landscape crushing the impenetrable rock so that valleys are carved out underneath it. But it's a subtle power that works below the surface and over time and leaves an entirely different landscape in our hearts. And because it's God's power, here's Paul's point to the Corinthians here in chapter 2. Because it's God's power, it will always come wrapped up in the most unexpected ways through what the world considers foolish and weak. Verse 1. Paul tells the Corinthians that he came he proclaiming the testimony of God. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I desired, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. He states it negatively on purpose. I didn't come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. And he he says it negatively to hammer home his point, to emphasize his point, that he actually came just proclaiming the testimony of God. He's just there announcing what God has done in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And he doesn't need to adorn it in any way with lofty speech or wisdom. He's just proclaiming, this is what God has done. I hear often a lot, it seems, we're, we need to live the gospel. It's just a new version, I think, of preach the gospel always and sometimes use words. That's like saying, eat your dinner, but sometimes have food. And on the face of it, it sounds great, right? We're just tired of nominal Christians who do nothing and are lukewarm. And we need to carry out the mission of Jesus. And so put the emphasis on that. But look, this is what Paul's saying. The gospel is news. I just came testifying to that. I just came announcing what God has done. 
The people of God are just heralds of what God has done, what's already been accomplished. In some ways, we're just newspaper reporters reporting on events that happened in the past, just announcing to the world. In in this way, God's not inviting us into his game to build his kingdom. He's not telling us to suit up and get after the work so that his kingdom can be built. We're just announcing that the game has already been played and won by Jesus. His kingdom's been built. The war has been won His enemies have been defeated. Our sins have been atoned for. And he has taken his throne and he's given his spirit to his church. And that just needs to be announced. I came just proclaiming the testimony of what God has done. This way, God's word is sufficient. It never returns to him void. It always accomplishes what he intends for it to accomplish. But here's the warning. It is possible to know and use the Bible in all of the wrong ways. And the most foundational way we get it wrong is to subtract Christ Jesus and him crucified. In John 5, Jesus is addressing the Jews who have the Bible. And they're trying to kill him. And he says to them, you have the Bible and you're using it all wrong because you think that in it you have eternal life. But their primary purpose is to speak of me. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, now verse 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ in a particular form, in him crucified. Look, it's easy to let important things become ultimate things or tangential things to become central things for the Christian or the church. I often say to our leadership, look, here's what we're doing. We're fighting for the center. In any moment, we're fighting for the center. I get this pressure all the time, the pressure for the church to speak into every hot topic of the moment, to give a hot take on a hot topic. And I'll be honest with you, I'm just not that qualified to give hot takes on on every hot topic, but it's, it's more than that. And oftentimes it's something that the Bible might actually speak about. We need, the Bible speaks about this. We need to speak about it too. Christian education, particular form of Christian education, racial reconciliation, social justice issues, how to deal with masks or not masks. These are important conversations. But I often say to our leadership, this is what we'll do. We'll have these important conversations, but let's treat them like roll-down-the-window conversations on the side of the road. We'll have them. Let's talk about them. They're not unimportant things. We need to talk about these things. But we're not going to pull into the cul-de-sac, take the chair out, and sit up and have a, a long conversation about that unless those cul-de-sac conversations are about this, Christ and Him crucified. 
Because these things have do not hold the transforming power of God that can make an entirely new person out of one who was once dead or can unroot deep roots of sin or can fend off the immense power of Satan's temptation. We need to be remade from the inside out at levels that are hidden from most of us. That's the thing, isn't it? Most of us just don't, in fact, all of us, I can put all of us, none of us have the wisdom we need to figure out what's actually wrong with us. It takes the wisdom of God and the power of God to change something that is so deeply rooted. In March of last year, the Ever Given was a 1,300-foot container ship stuck in the Suez Canal. You want a context for that? That's over four football fields long and as wide and taller than that. Immense. Got stuck in the Suez Canal. How do you get something like that unstuck? With tremendous power under the surface. You don't stand at the shore yelling at the captain that he shouldn't be sideways in the canal. You don't shame him for blocking up important traffic during a pandemic when supply chain issues are already a problem. That may make the finger wagger feel better, but it does nothing to solve the problem. A large ship with that much weight is stuck and needs to be freed. So they had to bring an outside help to rescue it from its own demise. It had a dredge under the surface. Under the surface, great power was being exerted to free up to ship, to rescue it from its own demise. On the surface, it just didn't look like much was happening. But underneath the muck that had held it captive was slowly being evacuated out. That's where the gospel works on us. Under the surface, below the waterline of our hearts where oftentimes we don't know what God is doing because we don't know what he needs to do. And the reason that Paul was with them is he says in verse 3, with weakness and fear and much trembling, wasn't because he was afraid of them. It was precisely because he was so Weak against what needed to be accomplished. I mean, if someone were to say to you, hey, listen, I need you to go over and dig out the, this, uh, the ship in the Suez Canal. You'd probably be like, what, me? I have no expertise in that, and it's just me. What am I supposed to do with that big old thing? You'd probably be at it if they insisted on it with fear and much trembling. Because the task was so much greater than your own wisdom or abilities or power to accomplish. This is where he's at. It was precisely because the kind of transformation that needed to take place in the lives of the Corinthians could only be accomplished by the power of God. And that only comes in one way, by the proclamation of Christ Jesus and him crucified. This is how we've got to read the Bible. It's one long story that tells the story of Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
Every little story is just a shadow anticipating that. Every moral command just radiates out from that center. Christ Jesus, him crucified. And so there has to be a commitment. If you're going to experience the power of God in the way that God has intended, it has to come through keeping that central. And it has to come with a commitment. You hear this? I decided. I put in my effort to this. Christ Jesus and him crucified. Because that's where the power of God is embedded. And for instance, if you've got your Bibles, look at verse 17 of chapter 1. Just go back a bit. Again, Paul's very concerned with how this message is brought. How it's wrapped up. How it's presented. How it's carried forth. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Again, it's fighting for the center. The only thing that stands at the center, Christ and him crucified. So I, even baptism, he pushed himself to the side. It's not unimportant. It's not central. I didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom. Why? Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the way the cross has to operate. The Christ and him crucified isn't just the beginning, it's not just how you get into the kingdom of God. It is the only way to get into the kingdom of God. God will let anyone in through that door, but you have to come through that door of Christ and Him crucified. You can't bring anything through that door that will disqualify you from Jesus Christ. He was crucified for you to come through that door. But you have to come through that door. But it isn't just the beginning it is the center from which everything emanates out. And when that happens, the power of God begins to dig out the muck under the surface and we get to be freed to float into the new waters of His grace and His love. D.A. Carson makes this point. It's a tremendous point. He says, nobody loses the gospel in a moment. It's a slow slide that starts with something else taking the center. He notes this in this way. The first step is by assuming the cross. When you just assume it, it gets pushed off to the side. And when it gets pushed off to the side, it treated like it's unimportant and only then is it abandoned he made this observation in about theological liberalism and how the mainline churches went apostate in the 20th century but he says it in a broader context of don't get finger wagging about that it can happen to any one of us in any moment in our lives now when god's power works through the message of Christ Jesus and Him crucified, it comes with tremendous power. So decide, make a commitment to keep that central. But notice this as well, that when it's central, everything emanates out from it and the power of God is used to shape us so that we might be cross-shaped 
in our interaction with others. I mean, to decide to keep the cross central means I'm going to carry it into everything. The cross isn't just how the beginning. It's not A, it's A to Z, but it's bigger than that. I, I love the idea of, of, of it being like the sun around which everything radiates, everything rotates, everything moves, but also the light of the cross shines on and illuminates every aspect of our lives in every interaction that we have. I can't tell you how many times I've had this interaction with others, and this has been true in my own life, when we're insisting, they're insisting, what I'm doing in this moment is biblical, and yet there is no cross shape to the interaction that they have with whoever they're doing this biblical thing with. I've been wronged. I've been sinned against. Therefore, I'm cutting so-and-so out of my life. That's not the shape of the cross. I want to get something accomplished that is important to God, but I'm going to do so with the lack of kindness and grace and gentleness and love. That's not the shape of the cross. The wisdom of God always has a particular shape to it. And it always shaped by this, working from given riches towards my own loss for the sake of others. That's the shape of the cross. You've been enriched in all things at the expense of Christ. He's gifted it to you at his own expense. He did so out of joy and love for you. That's the shape of the cross. And so Paul's going to work out of this as the center in every interaction that he has with the Corinthians. He says, okay, you've got a problem with sexual immorality. It's showing up in a few different ways. It was sexuality in general. So let's do this. Great, let's start here. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. Your body is now one with Jesus, and he loves his body deeply. So don't carry that body into an interaction with the prostitute. He loves his body deeply. He's made it his, his, his temple. He loves your body. He loves it so much that he's made a spirit to dwell in it. So here's how it now works in marriage. Your body is not for your own pleasure, but it's for service to your spouse. So give it away. Or dealing with disagreements with each other over a piece of property. And he says, look, you've, you've taken that disagreement to court. You've already lost. You've already lost. Why not suffer wrong and be defrauded rather than suing each other to gain something back? That's not the way of the gospel. The way of the gospel is I'll lose everything so that you can gain anything. I've been confessing to my wife and others how much I feel an entitlement mentality in my heart at this stage of my life. I thank God. I, do you know how much I've given up for you in this world, for your church, for your mission, how much heartache and pain and loss, and then I translate that into, so don't, I deserve, fill in the blank, right? Just whatever, whatever it is that day that I think I deserve, that's my argument. Here's Paul. Paul's correction of that, the cross. He tells the Corinthians, look, I have a right as a minister of the gospel to get paid by you, nevertheless. We've not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. 
The message of the cross, when it's set central, influences, radiates out, changes everything. As long as it's kept central and wrapped up in a very particular way. Verse 3. And I was with you in weakness and in much fear and trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's what faith does. Faith always rests on something. You know, put it on something, it's going to rest there. Gonna, it's gonna, whatever it rests on, it's going to color everything. And we're used to big, impressive displays of power. It's the way the world works. Cities in Asia and the Middle East have been fighting for years over which one has the tallest, most prominent building. Because the prominent building, the tallest building, is a sign of your wisdom and strength. Many presidents have said the reason that They travel with an entire motorcade in the largest cargo jet possible so that when he lands in other countries, it's to display to the nations of the world. This is how powerful our country is. But when the Son of God came, he came in weakness. He came as a baby in a forgotten place. Grew up in a blue-collar family. When it was time for him to enter a city, the capital city, he did so on a donkey. The time for his glory had come, he said, and what he meant by that was to be hung on the cross in shame. The worst tool of capital punishment that the world has ever implemented he hung on in weakness naked and ashamed as the power of God's wrath for our sins were poured out on him and he warns them I could call down legions of angels but instead he says this father forgive them for they don't know what they're doing Gotta be wrapped up in weakness. Look, I think there are two reasons that most of us keep the gospel from others in our lives. If we're honest. When God has built all these networks of relationships into our lives, we don't have to go looking for someone to share the gospel with. There are hundreds of opportunities every at least dozens of opportunities every day to tell others about Christ Jesus and Him crucified. The best news that we could possibly announce to anyone. But Often, I find, at least in me, I am assume it's in you, but it's not, it's in me, that the thing that keeps me from it is the fear of rejection of my own inability. Those are the things that cause me to shrink. What if I say the wrong thing? What if I don't know how to answer? What if I say it in the wrong way? What if I hurt the relationship? I'm not quite sure how to talk about Christ Jesus and Him crucified. What if I get it wrong and it hurts the reputation of Jesus? Look, we come as ambassadors of another kingdom. And it's upside down and it doesn't display, Jesus doesn't display his power in outward signs. To do so would rob the gospel of the kind of power that it actually has. And so he says to them, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling as a commitment. This is how it's got to come to us. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and of power. 
So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Weakness is your greatest asset to unleashing the power of God through his gospel. It's something to put on. It's not something to despise and shrink away from. So he can say in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, if I'm going to boast, I'll boast of the things that show my weakness. We actually have a description of Paul from the, around the 2nd century, passed down, obviously, at this point. And here's what we know. He was short, which is what Paul means. It's an appropriate name for someone like me. He was short. He was bow-legged. Probably overweight, called stout. That's a nice way of saying he had eaten too many things. He had a long nose and a unibrow. The Corinthians even mocked him for this. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. It's also obvious that Paul had a chronic and debilitating disease. He, in fact, he tells the Galatians, you know, the only reason you heard the gospel from me is because of a bodily ailment. That bodily ailment had just stopped me in my tracks and I couldn't move on. I'm, I was physically infer I had nothing else to do. I couldn't even continue my journey because of the bodily ailment. And you see, the very things that we despise because they make us weak, our lack of insight, our lack of wisdom, our lack of ability to speak. Again, I was thinking about this in our, in our journal reading with, with Moses. Why was Moses chosen by God? It's clear. He was the meekest man on the face of the earth. He had nothing else to offer. So God used that man to confront the, the greatest power on the face of the earth. And what did he do? He just denounced this God, this is, this is what God's going to do. And God did it. That's how God ushers his power into the world. It's seldom by the credentialed or by the beautiful. When Isaiah describes Jesus, he wasn't much to look at, for he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He was fragile. He had no former majesty that we would look at him, no beauty that we would desire him. He was plain. No one would have looked at Jesus and said, look at that guy. They would have probably looked at him and said, and they did. Who's that? Oh, but the power of God's always wrapped up in weakness. Weakness is an asset because the weight of the task is greater than any resources that we have. Fear and trembling is a good response because I'm too far inadequate to communicate the full glory and grace and love of Christ Jesus and him crucified. And so here you are in weakness and full of fear and trembling. And that is precisely the way Jesus needs to be proclaimed. Because then, when the power of God goes out, it's clear. When God awakens them by his spirit, gives them a new heart, calls them to faith, makes them into part of his new creation. It is clear this has happened because of the gracious power of God so that their faith 
might not rest on your wisdom or abilities or articulation, but on the power of God. And so here's what I want you to do this week. Take your weakness and your fear and your trembling and your inadequacies and your bodily ailments that don't allow you to do all that you think that needs to be done for the kingdom of God and count them now in the asset column and talk to someone about Jesus. All those things that you think, are these are my greatest liabilities. God says, no, 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 my kingdom, they're your greatest assets. Now go talk to someone about Jesus. And watch God just unleash his power. For Christ Jesus and him crucified. Let's pray. Lord, if we were, gosh, if we were to believe this, our city would be changed, our lives would be changed. If we were to believe this where we feel most helpless, we would bend our knee and say, God, take our weakness, wrap it around your gospel and do the most tremendous things that no one else can do. And Lord, I would beg you, may we in our own hearts Guard the center and make it our commitment to know nothing but Christ Jesus and Him crucified. Now as we come to the table, we come to two signs that point us to one truth that we proclaim Christ was crucified for our sins. Take this ordinary bread and wine and unleash your power in our lives by your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.